Good evening to you all. Uh, doesn't tomorrow uh, to yesterday evening feel like a long time ago? <laughs> so having this little deja vu of sitting here at this time of the evening yesterday, and it feels like a long, long time ago. So congratulations on 24 hours on retreat. Everybody's still here and I see a few smiles, so that's a good sign. And I really hope that you've had at least a few moments of uh, noticing ease or experiencing ease experiencing maybe an unexpected moment of happiness or contentment, peace. Maybe that's been on your cushion in here, maybe that's been in walking meditation, maybe it's been sitting in the lounge or out in the garden, in the dining room. One of the the things about slowing down and simplifying is we get to notice these moments. And it's really important that we that we do notice them. We let ourselves drink them in. So I really hope that you've had some of them. They often happen when we're not looking for them or when we're not trying to make them happen. When we try to make them happen, they get further and further away from us. Um, it's like these moments of grace that come upon us. So moments when the mind is actually quite clear and quite steady, even in that moment. There's this natural clarity, this natural capacity for awareness. The heart is open, rested. Uh, There's no, no problem. But I want to speak this evening about maybe some of the other moments, because you might have had some of those too. I don't know, I always do. So the moments when the mind isn't feeling clear and content and mm, yeah, happy or satisfied, shall we say. And to come back to this very, very important point that uh, Zohar made this morning that we've all been speaking to in our different ways, that in every moment of experience, our experience is continually being shaped by both what we pay attention to and the way that we pay attention, the what and the how of how we attend. Or we could say that perception is coloured, almost as if we have different lenses on, that we can look at different coloured lenses that we can put on and look out at the world through. Or another nice image is the sense of uh, awareness, kind of having an atmosphere. Awareness becomes clouded with different, or infused with different qualities. They can be beautiful qualities like metta, which puts a certain spin or fragrance on the world. Or they can be other qualities that actually mm, don't feel so good, don't feel so nice. But the awareness comes with these flavours. And I really like the image that's, again, a very common, popular image of awareness being like the open sky. And yet it gets visited by these weather patterns that pass through it. 
and actually when we see the landscape through a particular weather pattern it appears one way when we see it through another another weather pattern it appears another way and often these these states of mind that we're looking out through are so much a part of our ordinary experience that we don't even notice them as that as states of mind we tend to only notice them when they reach a kind of tipping point of unpleasantness and actually then we think oh the state of my mind is really a problem but the mind is always in in a state of some sort or another and um, maybe when we we're trying to meditate when we're really observing the mind or observing what the mind is doing uh, we become much more aware of that and we become much more of aware of the ways in which the, which the mind is not doing what he, we want it to be doing or um, yeah, how it's kind of thwarting our attempts to be happily, kindly, curiously present with our breath or our body or to be practicing metta or whatever. So... I want to speak um, about the particular set of mind states that are known traditionally as the five hindrances. And some of you will have heard dozens, if not more than dozens of talks on the hindrances. Some of you, maybe this is an entirely new word. But these are mind states that are a natural part of being human, that are with us in subtle forms, um, all the way up to complete liberation. It's not like they're just beginner's stuff. They are the, the kind of fabric of ordinary life. And we can experience them in really gross forms at sometimes. And sometimes we experience them as a real, just a kind of subtle, not quite, not quite satisfactoriness. In a way, they're all, they're all forms of manifestations of, of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. And so th there's this Pali word nivarana, which traditionally most commonly has been translated as hindrances because they're things that hinder our um, attempts to find clarity and ease and bliss through meditation. Um, but it really, they're more accurate, it's more accurate, accurately translated as. Um, things that obscure or veil or cloud the mind. So veiling factors or clouding factors. And part of the practice of self-care that we're really orienting to on this retreat of caring, uh, caring for this heart, body, heart, mind and caring for the world is actually to take care of these states of mind. And yeah, whatever stage of our practice or condition of our practice at the moment, you know, whether we've been on retreat for three months or 24 hours, it's all relevant. Whether we've been practicing for two months or 40 years, it's all relevant. Because when they're happening, they are our immediate opportunity for engagement with a path out of suffering. They are actually the ground and the food for the development of insight and the development of metta. And they're named repeatedly in the traditional teachings and prominently in the 
discourse on the foundation of mindfulness um, as things to pay attention to. So, yes, we are cultivating the capacity for present moment awareness, but the Buddha's teachings also point to specific things that it's particularly useful or particularly helpful to be aware of which is why there are all these kind of lists of things that appear. And this is one of the most famous lists, which is why many of you have heard many talks on them before. And so there's, a, there's an invitation to kind of take these things out and put a frame around them, to look at this particular aspect of experience. So the first one of these, the first of these factors, is the factor of sense desire, or the, ex the first of these experiences is the experience of sense desire. Sometimes also translated, uh, or another, another way this is expressed is as acquisitiveness, the, the, the need or the desire to get something, to get some kind of experience that will create some satisfaction or kind of complete me, complete my experience that's not quite enough in the moment. So I was trying to think of an example, and I'm afraid the example that you're saddled with right now is flapjacks or a flapjack. <laughs> Just uh, so uh, Gaia House does this thing uh, once a week, approximately. There's, this, there's, a, there's an afternoon where mm, something sweet appears at tea time. And the last time I was here, the thing that appeared were these ap absolutely delicious flapjacks. And so the thought flapjack popped into my mind. And so you can substitute anything you like, but um, the, the thought of a flapjack and, oh, wouldn't it be nice to find a plate of flapjacks in the, by the drink station when I go to make my next cup of tea? And so the object of my attention has become flapjack. And the more I pay attention to it, the more the flapjack kind of takes shape and form and perhaps a particular flavor and all this. And so the object of the attention is the flapjack. And the how of paying attention is with wanting. So that it's a wanting towards a flapjack that is my experience. But when we're mindful of sense desire as a phenomenon, as a clouding phenomenon in the, in the mind, it's as if we, we shift the frame. And so instead of it being, I'm I'm, all my attention is going towards the flapjack and the attention is full of wanting, we shift the frame so that, the, that now with the object of our attention, what we're paying attention to, is the experience of sense desire, the experience of that wanting. And the way that we're paying attention, the how of paying attention, is with curiosity, with kindness. So without judgment, with kindness. And that has a very different effect on what's happening. So there's lots of other examples. Our phones, for example, this is one place where we get, you know, really drawn into sense desire. You know, you, you land on something, it satisfies our interest for a little while, and then we scroll on to the next thing. And it's an endless scrolling through. Sometimes it takes quite a firm 
Um, so either we kind of scroll till we really feel fed up of scrolling or it takes quite a firm determination to, to quit. You know. There's a desire that kind of never satisfies itself. Or we can, we can shift and see, oh, this is an experience of sense desire arising. And sense desire in, in um, traditional Buddhist psychology also includes, so one of the, the sixth sense is the mind, and so thoughts themselves are sense objects. So even a thought can be an object of sense desire. And I don't know if you notice that sometimes the way that thoughts just say, just, just finish thinking me, finish thinking me, and then, 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 you'll, then I'll stop and meditate. But I just want to finish th thinking this one through to the end, and then the next one comes. And it's a real trick and uh, skill and interesting thing to develop in meditation, the ability to let go in the middle of a thought, to, to actually allow thoughts to go unfinished rather than them feeling they have to complete themselves or you feeling you have to complete it. So we, we shift the attention to the experience of desiring rather than to the thing we desire. And we shift the how to one of interest and care. And when we do that, we notice how uncomfortable that leaning into something, that sense desire is as an experience. It's a lot less comfortable than those moments of unbidden contentment that we might have experienced, of clarity, of ease, of feeling really centered and stable here, because there's this sense that we're being pulled towards something. So we can really, really notice that and reflect on how does it really satisfy? Because getting the flapjack usually is thought about, oh, can I get another flapjack? Or are they going to have those tomorrow or whatever? So the satisfaction of a desire usually just leads on to the next desire. But there's a real empowerment that happens for us when we can... It's not to say one should never follow, follow a desire, and desires are there biologically to kind of look after us. But there are many, many desires we know actually aren't helpful, or times when a desire is not helpful. It's not helpful to spend the next half hour thinking about flapjacks if there's no access to a flapjack for indefinitely, you know. Um, I'll stop talking about those now in case. <laughs> Profoundly unhelpful to some of us whose minds work like mine. Um, so... The, the Buddha had some nice similes for this. He said, when you're obsessed with something, it's as if the, mind is the, the clear water of the mind is colored with a dye and everything you look at just says this thing to you. you know. Um, so what's it like to really just feel that experience and let it go? How do we let it go? We let it go by just letting it go. Often it's helpful to just shift the attention somewhere else. Yeah. And we're cultivating a kind of flexibility in our practice of choosing where we place our attention. So, um, and when we recognize the unsatisfactoriness of feeding these kinds of desires, or we develop a taste, for example, for experimenting, if you remember this, to, to What's it like if I just let my thoughts drop rather than feeling I have to think each one of them through to the end, that somehow that's going to make me stupid? 
that. So the, the other side of the coin of this, the second of these hindrances or clouding factors of mind is aversion or ill will, which is where sense desire is the desire to get something, ill will is the desire to get rid of something. And it can be a person, it can be an experience, it can be something I dislike. And again, we're focused on what we dislike. So the attention has gone to that really annoying person. And we're looking at them. How of attention is with ill will. Or, mm, yeah, that really annoying thing that, I don't know, that bird who just is disturbing my meditation or that beeping clock or whatever. And everything is focused on how, how can we sort that out? How can we organize it so that the birds don't disturb our meditation or whatever? Or we can shift the, shift the frame again and we're looking instead at the experience of ill will and aversion and we can look at it with kindness and curiosity and see what does it actually feel like to be in this mind state, to be observing the world through this mind state. What, what happens when I feed it with thinking about it, with proliferating on it, with the stories that it spins, what happens when I actually choose to disinvest from those stories? So the, there are similes for this, which again, I think are very apt similes, that it's like um, the water of our clear mind is boiling. You know, when we're really angry or upset with someone or something, it's like the mind is boiling and the body feels like, uh, you know, and Buddha said it's like, it's like you're having a fever or you're, you're sick some way. So these are, we, we feel these things in our body. And one of the ways that um, aversion manifests often most painfully is a self-aversion. And we may be this, often when we try to practice metta for ourselves, this can, this can flush it out sometimes or illuminate or we get more sensitive to the ways in which self-aversion arises for us. And when aversion arises, it creates, it creates an unlovable self. And then we can start believing that and we end up with this vicious cycle or feedback loop. Yeah. It's really interesting to reflect when we do this meta practice in the afternoon and we talk about easy people and difficult people, how... Um, your easy person. So I was practicing metta this afternoon for a dear friend of mine. Very, very easy for me to practice metta to, metta towards. And I, one of the things she told me recently was about this big conflict that she was having with somebody at work. And to just think that, you know, for me, she's the easy person. For them, she's probably, they probably choose her as a difficult person. And it's just such an illustration of it's not in the person. You know, and we can create ourselves as somebody unlovable, and other people might create us as somebody completely lovable. And we can at times create ourselves as somebody lovable. 
So the lens that we look through is really colouring things and refraining from practising self-aversion is an act of non-harming that we can actually choose for ourselves. It may be difficult, it may go against the grain of a lot of habit, but it's a really, really important choice to make. Because in a way, the way, the way, our way of looking is infinitely more powerful than what we're looking at. Because what we're looking at is uh, fabricated by our way of looking. So this sense, desire and ill will are kind of pair. They're two sides of one coin. And it's also worth worth reflecting that both of them are seeking our happiness, aren't they? they the, everything that we want, want to get and want to get rid of is because we're looking for happiness. But they're doing it without wisdom, often. So this is to kind of not, not to judge or blame these states of mind, but to discern and bring some wisdom to it. Okay, yeah, I actually I do really desire my happiness, but is, is the mind going about it in a skillful way? Um, so it's like we want to put wisdom back into the driver's seat instead of being driven by these states of mind. One of my colleagues had the image of that when, you, when you're trying to train uh, dogs or a pack of dogs, the way to do it is with kindness to show who's in charge. And you could think of the hindrances as an unruly pack of dogs. Now, we don't want to beat them up, we want to kind of look after them, but actually it's really important to firmly know who's in charge. And when they know who's in charge, they will be a little more willing to do, do our bidding. So the third one is uh, what's traditionally called, again in this rather archaic language, sloth and torpor, or dullness and drowsiness. And this isn't just being sleepy and exhausted, which is something that you know we all need sleep, we all get tired, maybe we, our lives have been particularly busy and we are tired, but the sort of dullness that just kind of hijacks the mind, even if the body's not tired, or if there's no reason. You can sort of tell that there's an exhaustion that overcomes us when we sit down to meditate that completely evaporates when we get up and walk outside, for example. And you might notice at times in here, your mind is just sinking and dull and can't focus, and we catch ourselves spinning off into a daydream. And this is a, an example of this, this kind of this type of clouding happening over the mind. In a way, it's a mind that's giving up or doesn't doesn't want to engage, isn't, can't be bothered. Mm. Lack of, uh, lack of, kind of 
perseverance or willing to show up and it's you know we're so used to stimulation that when we when we have less stimulation it's very easy for the mind to kind of check out like this so again we don't want to be judgmental about it but just to notice this as an opportunity again to shift the frame so rather than me sitting here and and this is speaking of my experience earlier today, kind of noticing that suddenly that I'm lost in a total daydream and the mind just feels kind of heavy and dull. And then there's a recognition of that and one shifts the frame to, oh, you know, dullness and drowsiness is happening. What's that like? Yeah. What happens if I maybe shift my posture a little or bring some curiosity, some interest and some kindness to the predicament of dullness and drowsiness without making it into a problem, but rather the be than being lost inside it. Again, there's an opportunity for learning, there's an opportunity for developing qualities in the mind. If we don't bother to do that, we can spend our entire retreat daydreaming and it just kind of perpetuates ignorance, really. So to, to actually bring some interest, and interest often brings more energy. You know. And at least what it can do is to stop what often happens, especially with something like dullness and drowsiness, is these, these mind states, they kind of create cocktails together. It's like because we want to feel bright and alert and awake and be the best meditator in the room or even just as good a meditator as we'd like to be but we keep falling asleep and then we get aversion piled on top of that and then maybe another one on top of that and just we end up with these often these these mind states they kind of come in bundles together or cocktails together so at least not to pile another one on top And often it can flip, it can yo-yo into the opposite, the, the fourth one, which is um, restlessness and worry, or uh, restlessness and remorse, worry. And when the mind just is really agitated and can't stay still. And sometimes it's, it's almost like when there's, when there's dullness and drowsiness, there's like not enough energy in the mind. And when there's restlessness, there's too much energy and it doesn't know what to land on. It's looking, looking for things to land on. Nothing's quite right, nothing's satisfactory. I, I need to rearrange this and that in my life, in my world, in my experience right now. And so again, we're looking at, we're looking at what's wrong or something through this restless energy rather than stepping back and noticing, oh, there's this hindrance here of restlessness. What happens if I notice that? And notice that with interest and kindness. And how can I, mm, how can I instead feed an experience of calm? So can I um, attend to something calming that will that will steady the restlessness. So the, you know, restlessness is often we're kind of, again, churning in a thought world, but the soles of our feet aren't restless. 
Our, our sit bones aren't restless. The ground underneath us isn't restless. The breath. So we can shift the attention to something that is more soothing and calming. It can also help to give restlessness a big space. So if you have a really skittish horse, you put it in a big field yeah, where it's got room to gallop around. So if we're very, very restless and we're trying to force the attention to stay with the breath, particularly to stay with a narrow focus, it usually doesn't help. So that a simile for this is like the water, the clear water of the mind is like being swept by the wind on the top. So the surface of the wind, is, uh, the water is all choppy. And sometimes it helps to have the image of dropping down under the choppy surface of the water to find the coolness and the stillness in the depths. So traditionally, this is called restlessness and remorse because I was speculating that at the time of the Buddha, maybe people, the general climate of worry was probably somewhat less than it is now. You know, worry and anxiety are such common states of mind for most of us or many of us so much of the time that we almost see them as normal. We almost don't notice it, I think. And yet the main cause of worry uh, in the early teachings was when you had a bad conscience about things that you'd done wrong. Uh, I don't think they had you know, the, the kind of predictive speculative abilities we have to think about all the things that could go wrong in the future or indeed the collective sense of remorse of ways that we've, we are, um, have participated in creating things going wrong now, or that human beings have. So I think there is a, um, the, the sense of worry and anxiety are maybe aspects of this, this kind of mind state that are more, more prevalent, more widespread, more ubiquitous, if you like, in our culture. And we need, yeah, we need to really mm, take care of that and take care of them. And yes, there are things that, you know, there are things that we need to attend to in the world. Um, and that's a whole area of practice that I don't really want to go into on retreat right now but if you think more about we're working with caring for the mind and the predicament of the 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 modern mind is that we kind of swim in a sea of anxiety and worry and to really learn how to uh, take care of that through doing the kinds of practices we're doing it feels really critically important and to bring attention to how we how we feed how we feed that how anxiety and worry is fed by the kind of things we pay attention to on our uh, the way that we absorb news the way that we the type of ways of talking about things that we that we absorb it's really valuable to mm, bring some discernment to that
One of the people I really admire and respect is the historian Yuval Harari, who um, many of you maybe know his book Sapiens and Homo Deus. And, uh, he's one kind of a well-known public intellectual who has a lot of um, very interesting and well-considered things to say about the world and the direction it's going in. But one of the other things about him is that he is a meditator and he meditates for an hour every morning and an hour every evening and does a month of retreat every year. He's a teacher in the Goenka Vipassana tradition. And uh, it's really interesting to me, you know, when we sometimes think um, that this stuff is a kind of luxury or what will happen if I, if I engage too much with this practice, will it stop me? from engaging or being able to really think profoundly about the problems of the world in a constructive way. Actually, it's almost the other way. We need the kind of clarity and steadiness of mind that we can develop through this, this kind of practice in order, if we're really concerned about the state of the world, to have more capacity for focus, more capacity for resourcing ourselves in difficulty. Uh, so these two things really, really work together. So t learning how to take care of the useless worry so that the mind has energy for really choosing what we expend its energy on is really valuable. Really valuable. And then the last of these five mind states is doubt. And that can be doubt uh, about the teaching, doubt about the teachers, mm, doubt about our capacity, doubt about life choices that we, you know, often we have a kind of, that we're faced with uncertainty in the, f in the future and often we kind of want certainty where it's not yet available to us. So we think if we spend our meditation session worrying about something that can't be known yet, that that's somehow constructive. Whereas again, it's a big, it's a waste of our energy. Yeah. So doubt is not about... Um, just having questions or interest or curiosity or asking questions. It's that sense, you can almost feel it for yourself when it, when it feels like it's paralyzing us, when it feels like we're just hovering between not being able to land on anything. So a practical example would be you know, not being able to decide whether to do this meditation, kneeling on my cushion or sitting cross-legged, or which is the right posture to adopt. And then we end up kind of not doing anything or, or um, you know, we're constantly here doing the sitting cross-legged and thinking, oh, maybe I should move to kneeling, maybe I should move to kneeling. I don't know, maybe I'd have a better meditation if I was kneeling. Or I'm watching my breath, but actually maybe, maybe if I started doing sounds instead and we end up not committing to anything, you know, and the mind is just kind of paralyzed in the middle. It's like you're standing with one foot on either, either side of a river and the banks are slowly drifting apart, you know, that feeling. And uh, it's, it's often better to just step onto one bank of the river 
before they get so far apart that you can't step. Uh. And this, so it's again, it's shifting, choosing to shift the frame to recognize that an experience of doubt is happening. And rather than kind of keep wavering in the doubt, to just notice, oh, doubt. Okay, doubt. What does doubt feel like? Okay, maybe I'm not going to keep investing my energy in this doubt. I'm just going to come back to the breath. I'm going to come back to the ground underneath me. So it's about recognizing and attending to the state of the mind rather than feeding the doubt. Feeding the doubt. So those are the, the five the five hindrances. And this isn't an exclusive list of the weather patterns that you would find in your mind. This list of classical list of sense, desire, aversion and ill will, uh, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry and doubt. But it's a very good list. A lot of the other things you might experience have at least a flavor or a nuance of, of one or more of these. Um, so it's good to it's good to know this list, but it's n again it's not exclusive. The states of mind, things like guilt or shame or fear, is another one. Christina Feldman, who's one of our, the co-founders of Gaia House, she says that fear should be named as the sixth sixth hindrance. That traditionally comes under aversion. We could put it also sometimes manifestation under worry. Uh, um, but to see the state of mind as a mind state that's happening, it's an event that's happening in the mind. And to relate to it with recognition and care. And this way of relating to these mind states is often expressed through the acronym that some of you will know well already of RAIN, R-A-I-N. And R stands for recognize, and it is just that thing of putting the frame, shifting the frame to the state of mind, the frame being the thing that's it's like the viewfinder for the object of what we're looking at, R. Recognizing, yeah, this is an experience of sense desire or of ill will or of doubt. And then A is allow, and that means really allowing, allowing what's happening to be happening and being willing to stay with it, to actually put the frame around it and stay here, not try to get rid of it, not try to pretend it's not happening, to just allow it to be here, to, to hold the frame steady. And we all already have the capacity to do this often, we're often able to tolerate unpleasant states of mind without them derailing us. And we're building that capacity because we are we're learning to, with this wide awareness that we're practicing, to actually be able to hold in mind or to be aware both of something that's okay parts of experience that are okay at the same time as we can acknowledge yeah, a part of experience that is more challenging. And so there's this way that we can 
begin to titrate our attention between what feels grounding and steady and where there's some, some more experience of difficulty. We're growing our capacity to tolerate discomfort and to stay at ease whilst acknowledging an aspect of experience that's difficult. So to allow this experience to be here without judgment, without trying to get rid of it, and to give it some respect, because as I said, these hindrances are really life-loving life in us. They are trying to seek our happiness. They're just going about it without wisdom. So we bring back the wisdom by the next thing that I is investigating. And this investigation is largely a somatic investigation. What does it feel like to be having an experience of ill will or doubt? And to feel the discomfort of it and feel to, to recognize that it's the, there's more ease and peace in letting it go, letting this mind state go, or letting it be, letting it go, then investing in getting the thing, or proving that that person is wrong and bad, or um, satisfying the doubt, because we'll probably land on one thing, and then and by the afternoon we'll have decided that the other thing is, is right, often. So just investigating this experience, what, uh, what feeds the, investigating what feeds the experience, investigating what helps the experience to subside. And then the N to, to actually, uh, and part of the investigation also is, what is what's really needed here? What's needed? And then the N is to tend to that need, so to nurture. Okay, what's, what's the best response I can find for myself in this moment as wisely and appropriately as we can. So that is RAIN, recognizing, allowing, investigating, nurturing. And then you might notice moments after the RAIN also. So you just notice the awareness that is here holding it all. And notice when a difficult mind state subsides. Notice these moments of clarity that where we actually, the mind is not clouded with one of these things. These are as important to notice as the clouds. And I really like the, the idea of rain for this. Is rain is... Rain is something that softens the ground when the ground is hard and stony. If experience is difficult, it's recognizing, allowing, investigating and nurturing. Now that will soften the difficult ground of experience and it nourishes life. Rain nourishes life. So in the doing of this, we're nourishing cultivating, growing these strengths, these beautiful qualities and capacities of the mind for patience, for kindness, for clarity, for discernment, for wisdom. We're nourishing insight. And
and it's not a once, you know, a one-time thing. We need rain again and again yeah, for life to thrive. So this is uh, a process that we go through many, many times in our practice, maybe many times in a sitting. Uh, whenever we notice a difficult mind state arise, this is one, one way that we can really helpfully relate to it. We don't always need to go into it in kind of such a... Uh, um, what's the word, elaborated way. Um, so, you know, depending on how, um, how dominant or prominent this uh, uh, mind state or a hindrance is in our experience, you know, sometimes we'll be sitting here and there's just the, the kind of a little cloud in the dis distance of disturbance and we don't need to kind of have our radar out and think, oh, that's... That's, that, that's happening in the distance. I'm going to go over there and do rain on it. You know, it's maybe there's just a little spritz of, oh, I've seen you over there, and just sending you a bit of kindness. But if we really find ourselves derailed or bogged down in the midst of one of these, one of these states of mind, or even a cocktail of these states of mind, then maybe this is an, an approach that we can use. So you might need just a little spritz of kindness or it might be a situation where a kind of really steady mm, willingness to actually meet this thing and look at it a bit is uh, more appropriate. But to really relate to this, yeah, this isn't just boring beginner's practice, this is a fundamental part of self-kindness to be uh, observant of these kinds of states of mind, particularly these states of mind. So, yeah, I've written down to myself here, be kind to and have fun with our hindrances, which maybe is sounds counterintuitive, but actually if we can really bring interest to something, uh, the, the interested mind is a happy mind. Uh, the interested mind becomes uh, happiness, is a happy, it's one of the things that gives rise to energy and to enjoyment is to be able to take an interest in something. So paradoxically, even something as uh, uninteresting as dullness and drowsiness, in a certain way, it can be a cause for, um, cause for energy, a cause for interest, and actually then a cause for enjoyment. This real willingness to meet experience as it is and to engage with it actually gives rise to a certain kind of joy. So I think that's what I'm going to say for this evening. So let's just take a moment to let the word settle and to just notice how it is in this moment for us.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.